Welcome to the Defence Forces podcast brought to you by the Defence Forces Public Relations Branch. Hello and welcome to the Irish Defence Forces podcast. My name is Captain Kean Clancy and today we welcome onto the show Lieutenant Commander Jamie Cotter, currently serving as XO of the Naval Service vessel Eileen Etna, and Lieutenant Commander Martin Brett, 2IC of Shore Operations here at Hallboland Naval Base. We also welcome back to the show Lieutenant Commander Mike Brunicardi, Captain of the Naval vessel LE James Joyce. Our topic today is maritime interdiction operations. Thank you all for coming on and joining us, sirs. Much appreciated. So, what I want to go into is just to get a bit of your, of your individual backgrounds as well, just, just your, your careers to date before we actually kick into the to meet of what is a very uh, big topic and there's an awful lot in it. So for yourself, uh, Sir Lieutenant Commander Brett, um, your own background in the Naval Service. Hello, Keenan, and thank you. Uh, I suppose I joined the Naval Service in 1989 and I held a variety of appointments on different ships uh, on completion of my basic training, cadetship and my uh, officer watch training. I was promoted to Lieutenant Commander in 2002 and have subsequently been in command of the Orla, the Aoife, Ashling. James Joyce, and I've had various relief commands on most of the other ships, including the Neve, uh, Roisin, and uh, Orla, and Kira again subsequently. So between my seagoing and my time ashore, there's been quite a few and varied uh, different locations uh, and experiences. Wonderful. Um, moving on to yourself, Lieutenant Commander Cotter, I just realised as well, we spoke before and we, we often speak because we use the mad nauseam in the military about acronyms, but I... Uh, in, in outlining your appointment, I use an acronym that perhaps our listeners might know. So you're currently serving as the Executive Officer on the Naval Service flagship, Eli Etna. But do you want to just give us a, a bit of a background on your own wider career in the Naval Service as well? Yeah, absolutely, Keen. So uh, I joined the, the Naval Service in 2002, uh, did my cadetship and was commissioned in 2004. And, and since then until now, have been fortunate enough to serve in a wide variety of appointments, both ashore and at sea, and indeed in, in DFHQ and overseas as well. Um, most notably, I suppose, uh, I've served on the Ellie Neave, the Ellie Samuel Beckett, the Ellie James Joyce, and currently, as you said, Executive Officer and Second in Command of the Ellie Etna at present. Wonderful, great. And for yourself, Lieutenant Commander Bruno Carey, this is all old hat for you. you. This is your second time on the show, but for anybody who hasn't heard um, Season 1, Episode 2 on the Ellie James Joyce alongside John Rogers' Key, uh, sir, do you want to give a brief background on your own career as well? How are you, Keenan? Good to see you again. Uh, yeah, I joined the uh, Naval Service in 2001 and uh, same as Jamie and Martin on completion of my cadetship in my Naval Watchkeeping. Took up postings then between sea and shore, so I've been Gunnery Officer, Navigation Officer and Executive Officer. Uh, my final sea rotation is I'm currently in it at the moment as OC of James Joyce and ashore I worked in Naval Headquarters, uh, IMERC, which is the Irish Maritime and Energy Resource Cluster for a while, and um, uh, the Fisheries Monitoring Centre. Um, so it's full and very clear so far. Fantastic. So we, we have uh, each three in particular on because you all have a certain story to tell about your involvement in maritime interdiction operations and a certain and uh, you're all subject matter experts on the topic. So we're going to we're going to deal with those specific experiences a bit later on in the show, but we also want to talk about from a conceptual basis what we mean when we talk about maritime interdiction operations, like what is it? And also from a practical level, I mean what does it look like? What does the training look like? So I suppose we'll start out with Maritime interdiction, when we speak about that, what exactly do we mean? Sorry. Well, I suppose maritime interdiction operations, it's one part of the taskings that the Naval Service comply with. Everything that we do at sea, we cover under the general topic of maritime defence and security operations. So maritime defence and security, or MDSO, part of that aspect of it is um, maritime interdiction operations. And I suppose, as the name suggests in a certain way, 
it's when we at sea go and go on board a vessel, um, either a sailing vessel or a merchant vessel of any size or any type, and we enforce regulation or laws, either national, if it's within our 12 miles, or international, if it's on the high seas, or indeed UN regulations and embargoes, etc., if we're operating with, for example, uh, an EU NAV4 MED or EU NAV4 Somalia. Um, so it's where we would send our personnel armed. Uh, it's the highest type of military operation that we would do in a peacetime environment. Mm-hmm. And we would go on board, we would assert authority on the crew on board the vessel, we would effectively detain the vessel and conduct whatever search or investigation that we have to do on board that vessel at that time and proceed with the actions thereafter, either release it or detain it for further investigation by law enforcement. Okay, and what sort of, what are we looking for in this? What are we, what are we talking about here? Why, for what reasons might we be conducting a, a maritime interdiction operation? So, basically, it's, uh, the broad speak is it's law enforcement. If you look at the very broad brushstroke of history of our maritime interdiction operations, you're going back to the early 70s with the interdiction of the weapon smuggling vessel, the Claudia. Uh, subsequently, in the mid-80s, you had the Marita Anne. Again, another weapons uh, smuggling, arms and arms smuggling. We've had uh, illegal migration operations where we're trying to prevent uh, exploitation of vulnerable people across the seas. Uh, the obvious ones, and I suppose the more recent ones, would be narcotics interdiction. Mm. Uh, there's a large supply of cocaine coming from South America into Europe, and Ireland is the front is the, the frontier and the border of Europe when it comes to the smuggling of narcotics uh, by sea. So we have a huge uh, involvement in that. And uh, then there are other operations, for example, in the Mediterranean, where you're uh, gathering information on oil smuggling and other illegal activities down there. So the reason why you do an interdiction operation is based in law. And the effect of a maritime interdiction operation is utilizing the military skills that we have, that we've honed from our routine fishery protection duties. And we we combine the military and the peacetime and they become a maritime interdiction operation. Okay. Um, So... Basically, there, like, there's a wide, a wide range of reasons, as, as, you, as you outlined there, sir. Um, and as we discussed when we were having a, having a brief chat before this, it's, it's a very, there's a huge amount of aspects to an operation like this. And it's a, a lot of times it's a multi-agency um, effort. A lot of times it, it, it involves a long period of time and it involves a, a huge number of disparate elements. So with regard to what a maritime interdiction operation looks like, a lot of people would just think about person over the side of the vessel that you're looking to detain or looking to, to search, the, the armed element. But what, what does an operation like this look like from, from the genesis to, to the actual detention or interdiction? Well, you've hit the nail on the head there. A maritime operation isn't just the tip of the sword. It's not the, the high intensity, the, the Gucci element that we'd see on television in, in the Hollywood aspect of it. Maritime operations are prolonged happen over periods of, of days or weeks in cases. Um, and all of the operations that we have been involved in, they'll all start with intelligence or information. That gets fed into the standard process of, of planning and, and analysis. And as it progresses and it becomes more of a reality and more likely of an event happening, uh, we start to ramp up. So it'll often it'll start with a telephone call along the lines of, Something might happen this week, or there might be something in the air. This is from another agency, sir, as we're talking about. Either from another agency, yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So our friends in the Customs and Revenue are on Garda Siakana, 
are now from the MAOCN, which is the Maritime Analysis uh, Operations Centre for Narcotics in based in Portugal. Um, so these all feed at the high levels to other agencies, such as the Revenue uh, or Garda Síochána. And through the Joint Task Force, the JTF here, um, our naval uh, commanders would receive information about activity at sea and we would be able to feed into that. And that will then start to formulate into an operation. Um, many times they go nowhere. So we would spend a lot of effort, a lot of time planning and preparing. And then we'd be told by an outside agency, actually, no, stand down, you're not required. And then for the on occasion, we get told, yeah, this is going to be an operation. We're going to utilize the Irish Naval Service and your experience and your professionalism. And we're going to send you in uh, to do the high intensity tip of the sword type activities where we're sending guys fully armed, fully prepped over the side of a ship and enforcing the requirements to conduct an MIO. So, so from like the planning operation side, the planning of an operation, obviously there's a huge amount is going on before a vessel is even put on standby to do anything. So like what, what does that look like? So what, fee, what feeds into that kind of HQ operational planning side of us? So here in the Naval Base, we have uh, Naval Operations Command and Naval Operations Command Centre. Uh, and that's staffed by uh, full-time uh, operations staff. And they have the connections with the external agencies. Um, so what it looks like is the information will come in uh, indicating what type of operation, whether it's narcotics operation, an arms smuggling operation, people smuggling operation, and what assets then have become available. Uh, as the, the credence and the credibility of the information starts to improve and we start to get a formation of an idea, the staff here in the Naval Operations Command Centre will start putting together assets to see, uh, put the assets in place, often days ahead of when an expected operation might take place. Um, they'll go through the, the full military planning process. Uh, they'll do the risk assessments and They'll start seeing whether or not this is something, what assistance that we, the Naval Service, need, and they'll start to pull that in from the wider defence forces and our, the other agencies that are available to us. Um, normally at this stage, it's usually only the command on board the ship that might be used would be given the, the heads up. And it's a, the expectation there is the commander on board the ship would then start getting his crew uh, trained up and prepped. Um, often, not openly, often it'll be done under a case of just few extra exercises or something along those lines um, but then all the time back here the operations center will effectively go into a I suppose a lockdown mode where preparations will be put in place they start to test all of the systems the IT systems which I think we'll talk about later on actually um, and we start putting in place the infrastructure to support whatever units at sea are going to be doing the operation um, just I suppose again we can talk about it later on but on one of the operations that I isn't that we were involved in uh, I got a phone call coming down in Carinthool. I was out hiking on a Sunday afternoon for the operation that took place on the Friday morning the following week. Mm -hmm. And all throughout those four or five days in between that initial phone call to actually doing the interdiction operation, the support that you get from ashore is increasing um, all the time to the point where we will pull external agencies into the Naval Operations Command Centre and they'll operate as the planning or operational cell under the JTF uh, Joint Task Force here on Holbolan to support the unit or units at sea conducting the operation. Okay. Uh, so, Lieutenant Commander Bruno Cardi, you have a perspective as well on on that feeding in of intelligence from 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 the 
uh, from the area of operations that the Navy Service are operating in. Absolutely, Keen. Um, my prior role before taking over as OC LEJ Choice was um, in the Naval Operations Command Centre. So I've seen operations from doing it at sea to what you're just talking about there, the planning. Uh, in the operations centre, what you have is a system of networks that we're connected to, such as the European one of the Maritime Surveillance Network, which where we feed information into this system, which in turn generates requests for information and stuff like that. And it's the same with Mayock N. But our ships are out there all day, every day, gathering intelligence, uh, conducting surveillance of all the assets that are operating in our waters. And while the ships are doing their job, they feed it back into our intelligence cell, which then briefs the Naval Operations Command Centre, who in turn feed information then out into our partners around the world and stuff like that. So what you might get then is a hit where another European country might have an interest in this target. It might just be transiting through our waters. So we can conduct surveillance, develop what is called a pattern of life of this yacht or tug or whatever is transiting through that may be of interest to another. And then the European uh, partners are on a national case. The joint task force might look and say, right, we do need the naval service to interdict. And then we start moving into the planning stages where, as Martin was saying, getting the IT set up, getting the correct personnel, the legal aspect all in line. Yeah. And that's all done in the background to allow the captain at sea to formulate his plan on the ground, so to speak, and allows them then to get into the zone of interdicting whatever this vessel of interest is. Because that's, that's fascinating also because you're talking about here like an international web of intelligence sharing. To, to I mean, And I'm sure the intelligence, as you said, that the Naval Service gathers when it goes into this, um, to the cell to the, in Portugal, that that's also that informs other, naval, other, other navies around Europe and around the world's movements and, and their operations as well. So that just gives a kind of a sense of, of that the world isn't that large either. No, and it, it works both ways, you know, the French or the Portuguese might be conducting surveillance that might be of interest to Ireland Incorporated, so to speak, and send it our way. Yeah. You know, that we need to keep an eye on this fella, or vice versa, you know, we're keeping, you know, our geostrategic location, you know, at the northwest edge of Europe. We're watching pretty much everything coming transatlantic. We're watching everything moving up from the Mediterranean, so we're keeping an eye on that the whole time. And again, all of these or a lot of these traffic is moving through our area of operations. You know, as the northern polar regions open up as well, we're seeing more and more uh, traffic moving that way. Okay. So again, it's all moving through part, if not all, of our area of operations. And as regards selection of an asset to interdict, because I was just it just occurred to me there, I presume we're, we're talking about vessels that are out on normal maritime security and defence operations around Irish waters that are then um, passed by the Joint Task Force here in the Naval Service, rather than, say, a vessel being deployed directly from Hall Boland, or can that work both ways? Yeah, Keen, so that, that's a good point, I suppose. Um, the, the point to get across here is that there's a, a standing base level on all of our deployed units uh, at sea, uh, and, and that ties into the, the effort that you alluded to that goes into making an MIO operation a success, is that all of our ships at sea have a, a standing capability uh, because of a layered and structured training regime we have in relation to maritime interdiction operations. So at any one time, any amount of ships can be operating uh, maritime defence security operations around our coast. All of them would have a capability to conduct maritime uh, interdiction operations. And for sure, in advance of, of a, an operation, you might focus in on or finesse a particular part of your training, but you always have that standard and standing capability amongst the, the ship's crews that's worked on 
and, and um, uh, fine-tuned through regular and routine training uh, throughout the conduct of, of a ship's patrol uh, uh, on an annual basis. So the captain would, would uh, encourage the executive officer or the boarding officers to train on a regular and routine basis to, to maintain that particular level uh, of standing capability in a maritime interdiction operation environment. So that's, that's ever-present. Uh, and then that gives the operational planning staff uh, in the naval base the ability and the options to select whichever ship is the, is the mo most appropriate to, to execute a particular uh, operation um, as it presents itself. So every, every ship has that capability to interdict uh, another, another vessel. And I suppose it goes back as well. We've been down here, the Defence Force Public Relations Branch has been down and we've done a number of, of pieces to camera and things with uh, members of uh, crews of vessels who have one role that they do on board the ship, but then they're also part of the boarding team. So, so we, talk, it, we go back to the multi-role aspect of life on board a vessel. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I touched on the, I suppose, the structured, uh, uh, layered uh, training that we have for maritime interdiction operations. At various stages of a service person's uh, career, they will, they will conduct courses uh, which will qualify them uh, to, con to complete particular um, responsibilities as members of a maritime interdiction operation team. Um, and that cuts across all branches and all ranks uh, within the organization. So for sure, your day-to-day your -day role on board the ship might be a chef or might be a communication specialist or a mechanician, but you will also have an additional uh, role and responsibility of being a member of uh, the Maritime Interdiction Operation Team. And, and that's something that at, at very short notice, you may be required to transition from your day-to-day your -day, um, core combat job to, to this specialized uh, team member and, and, and complete the, the, the operation as is required of, of command. So yeah, that's, that's a good point, that it's, it's, it cuts across all of the divisions um, and the specialisations within the organisation. Mm -hmm. uh, if I could jump in, actually just on to, I suppose, developing that, if you think about it, we talk about a maritime interdiction operation team, and it is a team. So you will have engineers for engineering speciality on board the vessel you're going to. You'll have our communicators, so as they can either investigate or stop unwanted communications from a, a suspect vessel. You have seamen who are there to ensure that the basic seamanship is, the evolution is safe and that the vessel we're going on board is safe. So every element uh, of the team is selected from the different elements of the overall ship's company that's doing it. So each branch, each specialization comes up. And again, I suppose what you have to remember is every single member of that team has to be fully trained on the military side of stuff, the weapons training, the, the, the tactics, the procedures that are used to conduct that as well. And these are additions to their core mariner skills that they will have and hold an exercise on a 24-hour basis at sea. Mm -hmm. And as regards just to really go down into brass tacks at the very practical level, and pe people at home might not know this, equipment-wise, what, what are we talking about? Say, say you're on, on board a vessel that's about to be interdicted. What, what do you see? When, when, how does it look to you from that perspective, from a tactical perspective? Well, I guess um, at present, uh, what we would do is is we would equip our team uh, to the highest of standards. Um, you know, we would use uh, state of the art, um, tactical, all weather boarding suits, mm -hmm. um, which would be uh, used in any conditions and uh, environments that we operate in. Um, the very nature of those suits obviously give a, an air of uh, authority and professionalism, and of course, that's what you're looking to to um, uh, put forward any time that you do step on board a vessel in an interdiction role. 
In addition to that, then you would have a, a significant suite of tactical equipment that you'd carry on board with you um, in a tactical um, arrangement, and that would range from um, offensive weapons, uh, pistols, and uh, extendable ASP battens to um, mechanical restraints and various tactical equipment that you'd be required um, throughout the range of operations that potentially may arise through uh, an interdiction operation. Mm -hmm. And the way it's done as well, sir, is it, it's a, you, the vessels will be approached by a rib, by a, a, a ridgeable inflatable hull boat from the, um, from the, say, the host vessel itself, from the main vessel, or would it be? So you would have one of our ships and we've, our doctor knows that we operate in pairs where we can. You know, sometimes you might have to do an operation as a single unit on its own, but where we can, we'll use two ships. And we've moved more to a, an overt presence where the ship is used as an intimidating factor. Mm -hmm. um, so what you do is, at a safe distance, you launch your ribs with your MIO team, your maritime interdiction team, embarked in the ribs, and you'll keep them um, behind the ship. And the ship will then move between the vessel of interest and again, we'll kind of intimidate that vessel of interest uh, with just the size of the ship and get in nice and close. And then when the OC and the IC of the naval boarding team are happy, you then move to interdict. Okay. Board the vessel and then carry out your... It's, it's essentially... Yeah. A so you, you move the, the persons of interest on to places where they're clearly visible. So your team is minimising its risk that it knows exactly that there's five people on board, put three up on the bow, keep two in the cockpit, and you then, you know, anything outside of that, then you treat as, a, as an unknown threat. And once a vessel has been interdicted, and it, say it has been detained because it's carrying some form of, it, it's essentially bre breaching legislation, it, it's carrying some form of legal activity, what happens, what happens then? Well, I suppose the first part about that really is to realise in many cases the vessel may never be detained. Like we will do a lot of operations, we will we'll go through all of the effort of these operations and the vessel will be um, will be released or it will be free to carry on its way. So it's not a case that every time we close up to um, MIO stations there's going to be an arrest or detention at the end of it resulting in a seizure of uh, whatever. Quite often we go through all of this work and we find, we gather the intelligence but the intelligence has uh, a nil result in it insofar as there's nothing there, the vessel is carried on, but that intelligence gets fed back through the networks that Mike was talking about earlier on. When a vessel is detained, the skipper or the master of the vessel is still responsible for it. And therefore, you're in a unique kind of scenario where you have somebody who is responsible legally under international law for his vessel at sea, but he himself has to follow the instructions of the, the leader of the MIO team who goes on board there. Um, and in terms of what we will do with that vessel then, where it's feasible, we will remove crew members from that vessel back on board the Navy ship, where we have a duty of care to those persons now. They are now detained. They are detainees on board. So we go to a certain aspect coming into being almost prison wardens as well to look after these people who are uh, on board. And we have to give them the medical treatment and the administrative treatment and everything that they might need. Um, and we will then put people with the expertise necessary to bring that vessel safely into a port of refuge or bring it ashore. Uh, and we will escort that vessel all the way back in because once they're detained, there's the chain of evidence because there's now going to be this huge legal effort to bring uh, the case forward to the courts. 
So we have to be very conscious of the legal aspects of what we do and how we maintain continuity in the chain of evidence and not to disturb the scene. So you're now left with the scenario where you have to do a thorough comprehensive safety search and have, during that search you might find evidence. You have to make sure that that evidence is safe and secure, that it's not going to pose a danger to the vessel or to your team members. And you have to make sure that when the, the ship or the, the yacht or the tug or whatever it is is brought back alongside, that you can hand this over then to Angarda Siakana or Customs or to whomever. Um, and then the, the whole legal side of it takes over after that. So I think in our, in our operation, in Dances with Waves, we managed, we secured the vessel, that was a yacht, we secured that yacht, and then in very difficult weather conditions brought the, uh, the crew members back on board the, the naval ship. But we had to get a third naval ship to bring other naval personnel with sailing skills that weren't involved in the MIO interdiction operation, but were able to support that operation and then safely bring that yacht back ashore with the, the large quantity of cocaine that it had on board at the time. Okay. Just, just so. to compliment on, on what Martin said there, from the tactical level, certainly, I almost found the, the point you made there about the, the continuity of evidence and the preservation of evidence as challenging as the actual boarding itself, because we, we train, as I've alluded to, on a regular and routine basis to conduct the, the tactical execution of the boarding. But something that maybe that it's difficult to replicate is the, the pressure and stress that's brought on you as the boarding officer or as a member of the boarding team in relation to that continuity and preservation of evidence, because you're continually thinking throughout the long journey back to shore, what, what can I do here with evidence that may contribute to weakening the case and of course you're trying to avoid that at all costs yes. so that that was an additional challenge certainly that, that i felt um uh, during during that, that particular operation okay so we mentioned earlier as well that our personnel that conduct maritime interdiction operations like this um are trained to the highest international standards but there is actually a metric for measuring that there is and i suppose uh, both jamie and i have worked previously together in one element of the service here called FORST, which is the Fleet Operational Standards, Standards Readiness and Training section. And the purpose of that section is to kind of generate, evaluate and maintain our operational capabilities. So within that, we will conduct regular evaluations of each of the ship's companies uh, for their operational capability, that the equipment on board the ships are up to speed and the personnel manning those equipments on board are professional, competent, and capable to do so. So if I give you an example of that, I mean, Jamie touched on the, the issues of what equipment or what kit we'd use. For a long time, we used um, standard ballistic vests, which are fantastic at stopping bullets, but have a tendency to sink very quickly in the, in the ocean. So a large um, body of work was put into redesigning the, the kit that we send our maritime teams over. And that body of work relied on the experience that we gained from the, the operations. And they went across. So Jamie uh, took the lead on the new design and the new equipment. And a lot of the research went into that. And all of that comes from, I suppose, the, the, the broader community of maritime uh, entities that do interdiction operations, be it the United States Coast Guard, be it the Royal Navy in the UK, French and German experience as well. And that feeds into forced and within that planning cell enforced, then the various elements are designed and put together. So I suppose forced is the QA, quality assurance element of the operational capability at sea. But then to verify forced's ability to do that, 
we have had in the past uh, other countries would come over. So, for example, the British Royal Navy would have sent over a team in the past and they would have evaluated forced, doing forced work on a ship's company. So a train-to-trainer type yeah. uh, evaluation. And uh, again, that was that was passed with exceeding color, you know, to the top standards of it. So we don't just say, we don't expect our ships to, to do self-training and think, yeah, we're, we're up to speed on this. You have to test yourself. And the only way you can test yourself in these environments is to have an independent entity come out. So internally, force is the independent entity for the ship's company. And then from a defense force and naval service perspective, we will get other countries to come over and look at how our quality assurance teams are performing in their duties. Okay. Uh, so it's, it is a kind of a train-to-trainer, mission evaluation, readiness, inspection of the assessors. So it's when we know when they go and assess a ship, they are the subject matter experts and they will be able to feed back into the individuals on the ship to make sure that those individuals have the skills necessary and the equipment that we give them to do their job is up to the job that they're told to do. So there's a constant evolution of training and everybody is essentially sure. yeah, monitoring I mean, the, the subject and, and developing the subject and so as train the trainers aspect and that kind of thing. So, it's, yeah. it's, so well, if, if you take it, like the, if you look at New Zealand, which would be a similar sized country to ours, um, slightly larger Navy and different capabilities, but they put a lot of work into this. And, you know, we, we've had their, their admiral and their chief of, chief of naval staff over here in the past. And he'd recognized instantly a lot of the work that we had used because you don't reinvent the wheel. There are other countries who have done this work. We take the best from all over the world and we incorporate it into what our capabilities can, can achieve. And so we, have to, we look at New Zealand, we look at how they conduct their business. We adapt that for what are slightly more difficult environmental operations in the North Atlantic off the coast, west coast of Ireland. And we, tr- we introduce that to our ships through the forced cell. So it's a question of evaluating, but it's also a question of introducing new skills and capabilities. And that's part of the generating element of, of capability as well. So forced to look at what other countries do and how we can do it and how we can possibly do it better or how we can incorporate it into the, the type of operations that we operate in. Okay. Um, and there's also opportunities for training for training abroad as well with, with other uh, navies. And, and I believe some of you have experience with that, with, go, with going and training with other elements. But as Martin was saying, you know, first it feeds in to the whole training system. So everybody in the Navy is trained. You go to sea, then you drill, and then you're evaluated. So you're ready for the real-life event or an outside external uh, evaluation. So recruits do a maritime interdiction team course, so how to be a team member. All officers coming through now do a maritime interdiction instructors course. And that all feeds then into the, the whole training thing. So as I went through my career then I did a command maritime interdiction course overseas, which then brought me up the level to being a captain and when I finished that course I fed it into the forced cell, which then updated some of our tactics, techniques and procedures mm-hmm. and allowed us then to move forward. But again it's a constant looking at what we do, how do we change. So in the case of the operation that uh, Jamie and Martin did, we learned things then from those operations that changed the way we did my operation, or not yeah. my operation, but the operation I was involved in. Yeah. There was advancements then as a result of that. Okay, well, I'm supposed to move on to, to some of these operations because we've, we've done a good bit of foreshadowing. So the first, the first one we want to talk about is, is what's known as the uh, Dances with Waves. So Dance with Waves was an, was an operation that yourself, uh, Lieutenant Commander Brett, and Lieutenant Commander Cotter were involved in. Can you 
just give me a like a background of, of what this was. Sure, well, I suppose I'll start from the, the command perspective. Of, um, that was uh, back in 2008, seemed a long time ago now, but uh, like it, uh, the overall side of that was a narcotics interdiction operation. So it was a suspect of a, a vessel bringing cocaine from South America into either Ireland or Europe. The destination wasn't sure at the time. And um, I was actually a relief captain on board the Neve. I remember going on board and getting a handover file on one side of a desk and a post-it from the captain at the time saying, the hard work of the patrol is done, enjoy the next two weeks. And we got told, uh, you know, I just received a phone call from ops the day before saying, yeah, there could be an operation on, we'll let you know more information as it goes through. So we started that operation uh, on a Sunday and we went to see on board the ship, you have to train the guys up, you have to try and get them used to doing their regular routine job, but then also try and change the mindset slowly on board. And uh, we did that. We, there was a report that you out to us later in the patrol. So we used that as a bit of cover to try and exercise the ship's company um, in, the in the skills required for maritime interdiction operations. Um, more information was fed in. So on the Monday, I got another phone call saying, yeah, this is going to happen. On the Tuesday, uh, I remember in the evening time, putting out a call on, on, the, on the ship's broadcast system saying routine operations are now closed this is we're now going into an mio operation so that would have been tuesday evening um i think we positioned the ship outside mobile phone range and i turned off the internet so we isolate the ship from the external world yeah and ready to go at that stage so everybody's minds is now focused on the operation as it's going forward uh jamie at that particular for that operation jamie was the mio team leader um he was the, the boarding officer so he had to put his teams through his particular workups. He was also the gunnery officer, so he had to put his guns crews through all their workups. Our navigator, she was uh, new to the ship. She was a relief as well, so she had to go through all the navigation, the administration, the record keeping, the legal stuff. Uh, the executive officer and second in command, she had to plan the seamanship side of it. And uh, I was the link then as the command to making sure the ship, not only my own ship, but the other ship that was with us, the Roisin, uh, were ramping up towards conducting the operation, getting the information fed to us from uh, the Naval Operations Command Centre. And I suppose from my point of view, I think on the, the Thursday morning of that operation, Jamie had been putting his teams through the work. And I can remember saying to him, I said, right, you're ready now. You can issue the live ammunition and the weapons. And you, there's a certain feel that you get when you say that to a team and everybody, it goes from, this is no longer an exercise. This is no longer training. This is now real. You've got real weapons, real ammunition. You were going into danger, uh, but you're trained for it. You're ready for it. And I suppose, Jamie, like from your point of view, from if you wanted to. Like. Yeah, so I suppose that, that, that particular order from, from the captain, uh, you know, you're now ready, issue ammunition, that, that's sobering for, for the team leader um, because you're, you're very conscious of, of these people, these men and women that you work with on a day-to-day -day basis, um, you know, through through challenging circumstances in the environments that we operate in, you're, you're, you're issuing them with live ammunition and, and, and potentially facing into um, an unknown level of resistance on board a, a suspect vessel. So that is quite sobering. I would say the, the, the big difference for me at a tactical level, certainly, as the boarding officer, is, is, is the, the, the shift in, in mental resilience required from a training exercise uh, drill to, to this live operation. That's something I, I still remember to, to this day. Is is when the captain brought me in, um, and and explained the situation that we were in. 
uh, you, very quickly you, you realise that, that this is this is match day um, and all the training you've put in leading up to this um, is is hopefully going to see you through. Um, and, and for sure, for the reasons that Mike outlined earlier on, because of our layered training, our international uh, training, which benchmarks us, um, you were confident, you felt confident, you felt confident in the ability of the team members that were going to support you. Uh, you felt confident in the ability of the crew members on the ship and the captain and that they were going to place you in the right place at the right time to allow you to, to execute the, the, the mission. Um, but, but certainly it was very sobering. I still remember that. We're now gone from a training environment to a live operation and straight away that little bit of adrenaline that we all feel through, through various aspects of our life at various different stages kicked in and, and you realised that, that this was it. It was no more training. It was, it was, it was going live. I suppose from our perspective as well on board, this was the first time that we had done this type of operation over the horizon. So up until now, drug interdictions would have been done under within territorial limits with members of Angardi Shikona or revenue on board to help and support. This operation, all that support was back in the naval base. We're 150 miles southwest of Mizzen Head and it's just Navy personnel. So there's a certain comfort in that and that you know the, the men and women that you're with, but there's a certain sense of isolation that... You know, it's all on you that you and have to do. What it. was the reason for that, sir? Just, just in this case, why was it that it was it just because it was happened to be the the operation you were tasked on? It happened to be no, where it was going to pass through. Well, on a very broad level, this was done under the auspices of the Joint Task Force, uh, the JTF, which is the Customs, the Guards, and the Naval Service operating at the planning level, at um, the strategic level, I suppose, back in the naval base. So we've moved away from having to have these agencies on board our ship. To being able to do it ourselves and this is i suppose the development and the progression from the claudia the marita Anne in the past where it was all done under national law these operations are now done under international un law and unclos united nations conventions and law of the sea so that's where we now generate a lot of our legal authority from but i suppose if you were looking at that and i suppose very briefly to take you through the remainder of it you know that was the planning phase this operation was done at night time in very bad weather, as it turned out. And, you know, we went from, we'd been tracking and monitoring this vessel for three days. So if we then go to an overt phase where we're going to launch. And the first time that this person knew that we even existed, or that the suspect vessel knew that we existed, is when you just blind them with searchlights. You come up on the radio, you identify yourself, you state the reasons you're there. And it's that, the shock and awe aspect of in kind of generating compliance with, with your intention before you even send people over. And as Jamie alluded to earlier as well, once you do send your boarding team over, then you've got a team of 10 guys dressed and your listeners would see the, the various other stuff that the audiovisual school has sent out of the MIO teams practicing on board ships in the, the black suits with Navy written clearly identified on it. You've got officer presence weight of numbers, the use of force, escalation, all that stuff comes into play during the overt phase. You've got two ships, one either side of a suspect vessel, full arms pointed on it to, again, ensure compliance with, your, with the instructions you're giving to the, to the suspect vessel. And then when you go on board, you secure them. I think in this particular case, the weather was so bad, they were kind of relieved to see us because they were coming toward, they'd, they'd had a difficult transit across the Atlantic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when we brought them back on board, to the to the Neve on board the ship, um, we have to go through and make sure that they are okay. So all of this happens. I think it started maybe from about 
seven o'clock in the evening and by the time we started to get them back it was four o'clock the following morning yeah in very difficult environmental conditions i mean it was gusting up to we had force eight i think by the time we'd completed the crew transfer back over um which would be literally on the limits of our capability to operate yeah but because of our experience in fishery protection because we do routine boardings we had managed to secure the vessel and de-escalate it from an MIO back down to a seamanship evolution of transferring boats and people back and forth. Um, Just on that point, I suppose, Keen, as well, like to, to, to give a visual uh, description maybe for the listeners on, on, on what that means. For me, uh, as the boarding officer and other members of the boarding team, there was a certain amount of anxiety uh, leading into the boarding because of the weather conditions on, on that night. Um, and I suppose the easiest way to describe it is if you imagine the team had to make its way from a, a rigid hull inflatable boat, our rubber boats that, that we use to transfer the boarding team to the vessel of interest, we had to step from that vessel onto uh, the yacht in these challenging conditions without the provision of a boarding ladder or, or without the yacht knowing. So, so that, that particular point was, was, was critical, stepping from our rib onto the yacht in those challenging conditions. And, and the skills uh, and the, the competence and capability of our of our crew members, of our rib coxswains, uh, really hit home for me that night. It was incredible. So you had all this anxiety, but the rib coxswain brought the rib in alongside the yacht in those very difficult environmental conditions. And really, it, it, it's, it's incredible to think back. He, he made it stick to that yacht like glue, mm. and it provided a stable platform for a split second or a couple of seconds that allowed us to get on board. But that really... And reflection now really underscored for me the, the capability that our guys and girls have driving ribs around the North Atlantic, around our coastal waters. And it's something we probably take for granted on a day-to-day basis. But that's the picture I remember. Terrible conditions, but our, our rib coxswains and our, our sailors, you know, really being in tip-top uh, form um, because of the training and because of the, the skills they learn through, through the, the less glamorous fishery protection duties that we conduct on a day-to-day basis. And when you stepped on board, as I said, like as in just kind of paint a picture for the listeners as regards on the yacht itself, like were, were the people on, how many were on the yacht, were they compliant, were they, like, what, is, what does that look like from your perspective? Yeah, so, so leading to, to getting to step on board, there was, there was a significant uh, journey in the rib in those challenging conditions, you know, which has an effect on you. Um, uh, you know, we, we prepared the team uh, from a mental resilience perspective beforehand, um, but we still spent, you know, uh, uh, over an hour in the rib uh, transiting towards the, the vessel of interest. So you're, you're dealing with, the, with those challenges. And then you step on board the physical challenges that I've outlined already of trying to get from a moving platform onto a moving platform um, is, is obviously uh, uh, challenging. So, so we got on board. There was three members on board. They weren't aware that we were coming on board because they were dealing with the ship, which was at the same time contacting them by, by radio and, and had lit up the immediate area with searchlights. Um, so it was a shock to them and a surprise. Uh, and if you could imagine the, the equipment that I described earlier on, so the black tactical suits with the tactical um, headgear and uh, equipment, if you can imagine a team of people coming over the side of your guardrail uh, unexpectedly in the, in the late hours of, of a very dark and difficult uh, winter's night, it, it, it um, I suppose, leads to an air of compliance, which is what we were hoping to achieve. So ultimately, there was a deterrent factor, the ship adjacent to their position, us coming over the top of a guardrail in, in tactical, uh, professional-looking equipment in a professional manner, um, all led to a very compliant um, situation for me to deal with once we got on board. 
and then everything de-escalated as Martin said from that point on so I think the equipment and the training and the positioning of the ship all made my job and the boarding team's job a lot easier uh, because ultimately the three people were quite glad at that stage as Martin had said to see us there because they were in significant difficulty themselves because of the weather conditions. Okay so you've detained this vessel what in the end of the tunnel what laws were they breaching? So the, first of all, they were trying to import one and a half tons of uh, pure cocaine into Europe. Um, and the, the legislation that the operation was conducted under was United Nations Conventions and Law of the Sea. Um, so once they were detained, uh, the three individuals were brought ashore. Um, we were tested by Angarda Shiakana that we had done our jobs correctly, that we had treated them humanely and whatever, and we handed them over. And it then becomes an issue of uh, Angarda Shiakana taking the case forward and they're tried under national law in Ireland in our courts. Um, from our perspective, what came out of this? Three people were detained. They were given min minimum mandatory sentences of 10 years for importation of illegal narcotics. We took one and a half tonnes of pure cocaine off the streets of Europe. Um, and I suppose this is normally where you quote the line from the movie The Guard, you know, I don't know what street you buy your drugs on, but it doesn't cost that much. So I don't like using figures, financial figures, but we kind of broke it down one time into 155 million lines of cocaine were taken off the streets just with that one operation. Wow. And that's the win for me. And I remember, you know, the ship's company captain, as captain afterwards getting, I remember there's one particular letter we got from a hall uh, porter up in... Um, Cork University Hospital who the content said of his letter saying I'm tired of pushing people around our hospital corridors as a consequence of drugs your operation has saved that and to me that's the success that's what Ireland got out of this the naval service got you know that was our day out that was our big thing up until that point if we'd been talking about this most Irish citizens wouldn't have known we had a navy mm -hmm. wouldn't have known what we'd done or whatever and yet here we were 70 four odd bales of cocaine stacked up looking like a wall on the key wall with the naval boarding teams behind it. Um, and, you know, all of a sudden Ireland realises, hang on a second, our Navy's playing at the top level here. Mm -hmm. You know, this is inter-county championship stuff. This isn't club level football. Yeah, um, I, I think in addition to that as well, internationally it put us on the map um, because I know that there were some of our officers were actually overseas on international courses at the time. And, and because it was a, an international... Uh, uh, indeed European um, driven operation uh, it made international and European news and, and some of our officers that were on courses uh, overseas you know were congratulated you know this was seen internationally by other navies um, traditional powerhouse navies as being a hugely successful and hugely significant operation and, and maybe that put us on the international map in a, in a manner that we hadn't been to uh, up to that point you know um, which which I think is significant in yeah. our history. I think well, from us, I suppose, internally within the Naval Service as well, like we'd identified, we had our procedures, we had our doctrine at the time. And on the night and on that operation, we had to take that doctrine and, you know, as, as the, the Marines would say, adapt and overcome because what we were presented with wasn't what we were given in our doctrine. So we had to adjust it. And we identified areas that we had to learn lessons from ourselves Mm -hmm. So, for example, when Mike uh, was part of uh, Operation Unity and, and the Machiavella, the the bridge that was uh, used to cover the, the gaps in the capabilities that we had identified as a result of 
Operation Seabite with Dances with Waves. It was a huge learning curve. So by the time Machiavella came around, we had changed, we'd adapted, we'd improved in technologies and etc. And I suppose, Mike, you'd, you'd be able to explain better yep. the, the benefits of that side of it. So internally, we gained a lot as lessons identified. Nationally, suddenly we, we had a massive day out in terms of succeedingly removing one and a half tons of cocaine off the streets. And internationally, suddenly people realised that Ireland, this rock in the northwest coast of Europe, has a navy capable of operating to the very very high standards. Yeah, um, and it's, it's just because we spoke earlier about development, uh, as in with forced and, and constant development, um, and as you said, identified some capability gaps that this is a hugely successful operation, but you also are constantly looking at, well, how can this be improved, or where could we have done better in this? And obviously we're going to move on now to Lieutenant Commander Bruno Cardi's um, Operation Unity and the Machiavella. What, what are we talking about as regards capability gaps and what have what have we improved on going forward? Between the two operations, you had a six-year gap. And in that six-year gap, you had um, the development of force, the implementation of force, and force becoming the standard that we now operate to. Um, and the improvement in courses and the more frequent courses, as I said, recruits doing the uh, MIO team members course, officers doing the instructors course. What you had is where the Navy saw our, the gaps were really in command and control and information sharing. Where I saw it with my Captain Lieutenant Commander Heffernan, we saw a gap where Martin was taken, I wouldn't say out of the loop, but was in and out of the communication centre on a satellite telephone back to the naval base, discussing what was happening with the operational commander back here. Whereas I could see with the development of the recognised maritime picture, sit aware, the tactical chat, my captain was able to stand at a PC and share that information across a secure net. Again, um, he was able to put up his plan, you know, in a picture, so that allowed the fleet operations officer and the operations command centre back here to know exactly what his mindset was, what his planning was, and how he was going to implement the introduction of the Machiavella. So those kind of IT setups small changes in kit um, but I had pretty much the same kit that Jamie did his operation in which was coming to the end of its um, its lifespan at that stage it was old it was, it was a bit problematic with it but one of the advancements we had was the tactical vest so this went over your ballistic vest which allowed everything to come off your hips and up onto your chest ring mm -hmm. um, that made things a lot easier for us but again these were all developments, so IT kit and other equipment then that we, you know, systems that Martin spoke about with, with Forst, the evaluation of ships every 18 months, you were, you know, not only doing your own drills and your own exercises, but you were measured to the standard that the Navy was now operating at. Yeah. So when I went out as executive officer on Ellie Neve, one of the first things I did when I took over as the MIO uh, boarding officer was, I looked for people who were going to do the majority of their two years on the ship with me, and it was six of us joined pretty much in around the same time. And due to the, the two years out, two years in rotation of the Navy, uh, how we operate, these six people were going to spend most of their time with me, and I'd be able to bring in one or two people here to make up the 10, which then allowed me to have a core team with a few people implemented in. So the six of us plus the four, began our training then and we built up to, you know, our forced evaluation and then the real life event that was Machiavella. Okay. And 
So, so just, I suppose, the, the Machiavella and Operation Unity, yep. from Genesis to actually encountering the ship, can you give us just a kind of a talk through of the background? Yeah, so we were out on a routine man, uh, maritime defence and security operations patrol. Um, we were conducting fishery protections operations and just general surveillance. And we got moved into a position where intelligence was starting to be fed in. Now, I was the executive officer, so um, Lieutenant Commander Heffernan was getting this information and was feeding it to me as the, the uh, boarding officer. But we're talking about from initial sharing of intelligence into boarding you're probably talking about a week where the ship was engaged in surveillance and mio looking for this contact that was you know the intelligence was that it had loaded in trinidad and tobago and was making its way across the atlantic and um, there's an ocean data acquisition boy which is a global network of uh, data acquisition boys about 350 miles southwest of mizzenhead and what the intelligence was is that he was using this as a, a signpost to get as far as that, to make a leap down into mainland Europe or, uh, you know, the UK or somewhere like that. So we were moved into a position. Um, Ellie Roisin, again, was the second part of our task group. Um, she was on guard ship uh, back in the naval base, but was immediately sent back out to sea after they embarked uh, Revenue and Customs Service personnel and, and Garda Shiacon personnel. So we were out at this old ass boy looking and developing a pattern of life that I've spoken about and a sea surface picture of all the contacts that were around her. With the development of the recognized maritime picture, we had a feed of all the automatic identification system ships that were in the vicinity. So we were literally checking these off that, yes, that's a cargo ship, that's a, a freighter, you name it, that's a fishing boat, all of these things. And what we were looking for was that outlier then that wasn't on any of the open source intel. Mm -hmm. What's he doing here? That's a small contact. So we were building up to that and to feed into the, the team picture. You know, um, I always use Abel Seaman Huntley as an example that Abel Seaman Huntley was the lookout on my watch on the 4 to 8 in the morning. And we had received intelligence of Potentially, he was in an, the Machiavelli was in another location, but Seaman Huntley on that watch reported to me that he thought he saw something at green three zeros relative bearing that we use, which then focused me as the officer watch. Small contact, white light, which just refocused us. We briefed the captain, he briefed ops. And from the lookout doing his job, it actually started to hone everything in, and it was the Machiavelli. So it allowed us to say with 95% probability that it was him going on his trend across the Atlantic um, using all our systems to look out doing his job and then it led us into right develop a final pattern of life I started getting my team together you know we were using you know procedures that we'd learned it was something I picked up in annual exercises when I was an officer under training and we had the army ranger wing embarked was that they used the hanger on Elietna as kind of a they had all their information on the bulkhead. So I used what intel I had to brief my team and I used the gym on board. We shut the gym down and the MIO team had access to this area. So they were able to look at who the characters were on board. So the intelligence was feeding us that there was five potential people on board. And these were their, their profiles, uh, what the yacht looked like. So we were able to develop an embar embarkation plan. Um, so all of this was done. Um, as we got ready and as we 
finally closed in. We were launched at about, uh, I think it was about 2,200 hours, and again, we closed in on the yacht. To say it was a dark night is an understatement. Um, it's the darkest night I've ever, I've ever seen at sea. It was so dark that we could not see Elin Eve, which was within 100 yards of us. You could hear the rumble of the engines, but you could not see the ship. That's how dark it was. To the point I had to radio the ship and they had to put a green light through the aft uh, bullring to allow to give Abel Seaman Huntley, who now is the Delta coxswain, a reference point for the ship. So we were able to track that as we went closed in. To mirror what Martin was saying from a command point of view, when it got to a certain point, Lieutenant Commander Heffernan started the questioning and we broke cover and closed in the exact same procedures. We lit it up uh, and we made our approach then. Uh, while Intel fed that there was five, there was only three on board. Um, as Jamie was saying, Seaman Huntley, you know, skills developed, you know, boarding trawlers off the West Coast. And this lad was 19 years old. You know, and that's his skill set at that age. He was able to do an unbelievable job. The weather had deteriorated to about a four, seven or an eight as we embarked. We got on board. And in fairness, it's it's the command present. It's, it's the ballistic gear. It's everything. The lads were, to be honest, they were just glad to see us because they were actually getting into serious difficulties. They ran out of food. One of them was eating gone off mustard out of a, a fridge. Another one was eating the cocaine itself. Um, and they were in proper difficulty, you know, their mainsail was ripped, yeah. they lost, lost their emergency rib, they had one tank of um, petrol left for their engine, which soon after we conducted the, the interdiction operation a couple of hours later, it, it, the engine seized, so they would have been subject to the elements out in the middle of nowhere, so they were kind of glad to see us coming. Again, echoing what Martin said, you know, Roisin was ready to go. Their naval boarding team was standing by if they needed to go, if we couldn't deal with the situation. So you have all that support element there. Um, we were lucky that Roisin had pretty much a sailing team who were capable of sailing it. And they took the um, detainees back to Roisin then and they cared for them. And as I said, they were having problems with their engine. So Roisin had to use their core mariner skills and conduct a tow. So they had to set up a tow and tow the Machiavella back to Cork. Yeah, you know, so that in itself was an operation in the fact that they had to go from, you know, being part part of a task group, and not only being part of that task group, but had to conduct a tow of a vessel of interest, maintaining the continuity of evidence, a crime scene, and at the same time having to keep an eye on these three lads that we had detained. Yeah, so there's a huge amount of skills. Huge excellent. amount of skills. Yeah. Yeah. And that as regards, that was three hundred miles or something. Three hundred fifty yeah. miles, yeah, southwest of. Well, so, yeah. I think the point Mike, Mike made is key there as well. I mean, the, the, the Rib Coxon was yeah. 18 or 19 years of age. Yeah. Uh, I remember talking to some of the guys that have been involved in operations, you know, of a similar uh, age profile. And, like, you know, their friends and their peers are blown away yeah. when, when they think what their, their friends that aren't uh, serving are doing at 18 or 19 years of age compared to a guy that's, that's putting a 10-man tactical team on board a, a suspect vessel 300 miles off the coast of Ireland in, in worsening weather conditions, it's uh, it's it's incredible stuff, really. Yeah, it's yeah. incredible thing to think of, yeah. And as regards the results of that, as well, sort of kind of uh, like what kind of a size of cocaine are you talking about was taken off the Mackey there was Villa? there was forty one bales on board, um, and again, where Jamie's team had to do a bit of rummaging, you know, ours, 
I wouldn't say it was straightforward, but when I asked John Powell, did he have any narcotics on board, his answer was, it's everywhere. So when I sent my uh, safety team below decks to check for any attempts to scupper or sink uh, from underneath us and to do with just a safety check, um, Mick O'Regan came back up and said, it's, it's everywhere. And when I went below decks myself, it was literally neatly stacked, uh, but it was everywhere. So I think the, the financial side of it, it was, it's somewhere between 290 and 350 million euro worth of cocaine. Wow. And again, talking to the guards, same as Martin, it's the, you know, that is a great, it's great headline and stuff like that. But think of the damage that that cocaine would have done, not only to human lives, but the additional crime, the petty crime, you know, the robbing, all this kind of stuff. So by taking that out, we've kept that away from kids or people that could go down a slippery road into an area that you know we don't want them to go you know it was yeah. destined for the European market it could have hit the Irish market so we removed that amount of cocaine from I mean you're disrupting market. a business model that's impacting I think on, on almost every village in Ireland now I mean everyone's aware of um, towns and villages all over Ireland that have have issues with cocaine so yeah. I think uh, those these operations are, are impacting that business model to, to whatever extent yeah so um not only did we get um, the cocaine on board, but uh, a satellite telephone was also uh, found on board that the uh, Garda Sheikhan were able to take away, conduct their analysis and reverse engineer. And what it was, was John Powell was contacting his son back in the UK. John Powell was one of the... He's the skipper ah. on the Machiavella. And what we ended up doing, or not us, but the guards, the National Crime Agency, through our partners in Europe, not only did we get the three guys on the yacht, but the National Crime Agency in the UK were able to get the rest of the gang. So from our operation, 350 miles west of Ireland, there's now 12 people in prison as a result. Wow. And we're all connected through that satellite telephone, that gang that were, you know, bringing this across. And through the information sharing that we spoke about at the, at the top of the podcast. Yeah. And, and our, our intelligence all came through Mayock and to the JTF out to us on the ship. So, you know, that, that's how it works. That's the... The positive aspect of being in these partnerships that intelligence you know the intelligence was so good that i called john paul john as soon as i saw him because i knew him yeah. i read his profile i knew the majority of you know his background story and stuff like that yeah. wow so these skills that we uh, have developed in the atlantic have translated into the overseas environment and in particular here i'm talking about operation sophia you uh you nav for in the mediterranean yeah, so I suppose Ireland has been participating in operations in the Mediterranean for a number of years. We started with Operation Pontus, which is a, a bilateral uh, operation between Ireland and Italy. We sent our ships down there, and that focused very much on migration, illegal migration, uh, along Europe's southern border, which is the Mediterranean Sea, with a lot of migration coming from North Africa, principally coming out of Libya. Uh, the Naval Service Defence Forces transferred from Pontus into Operation Sophia. So that was EUNA for MED. And we sent a number of ships down uh, on that particular operation as well. But the focus of the operation changed from humanitarian rescue and assistance to, to the more, more military side of surveillance and uh, operating under a UN mandate. Uh, it was Europe's response to the, to the crisis in the Mediterranean. And uh, we then shifted from uh, Operation Pontus and its mission into Operation Sophia and its mission statement. And I suppose the mission of Operation Sophia is to uh, prevent 
the people smuggling and interrupt the business model for human trafficking in Libya, for the gathering information on oil smuggling, and to impose the UN embargo on heavy weapons uh, trafficking into Libya for the um, conflict that's ongoing there. So during the course of the operation, we were down there on the James Joyce, which is uh, uh, Mike's ship now at the moment. Um, we spent four, uh, four months down there, and for the duration of Operation Sophia, which is a number of years, there was a total of five military maritime interdiction boardings were conducted, and two of those were conducted by the Joyce when we were down there. Um, and this was a recognition of the skill sets that we have because of the operations that we've conducted, and because we're used to operating in an environment that the northwest coast of, uh, of Ireland and the Atlantic Ocean, it's, it's a far more um, difficult environment to operate in than the Mediterranean is. Uh, so we were able to seamlessly transfer the skills that we would have used for our narcotics interdiction and the arms smuggling interdiction at home into the two operations that we conducted down there. Uh, the first one was um, for illegal migration and it was on a large uh, cattle carrier. Um, and again, so the, the, the force headquarters acted as the information hub. All of the intelligence, the multinational intelligence, was fed to force headquarters, and that was fed back to us on board the ship. And it was worth, now, we were fortunate that one of our officers was a staff officer on board the ship at the time. And we later found out, after the operation was a success, and we conducted the MIO and conducted a search uh, and gathered some very useful information from it, uh, we, we realized afterwards that uh, nobody at the force level had actually been involved in a maritime interdiction operation other than the admiral in charge because people had rotated so much from the last time they'd done a boarding. Mm -hmm. Whereas on board the Joyce, we had just simply gone from the standard patrolling intelligence gathering mode into MIO mode. So we were getting all the information from the ship. We were getting signals coming back, instructions, do this, do that, do the other. And we were just ticking them off our list. Like, we've already got this done. We're yeah. ready to go. And we entered it. And so we did that boarding. Um, a very large vessel. A lot of lessons identified in that one, again, because this wasn't a yacht. It wasn't drugs. You had to go looking for people. You had to check documentation. You had to check manifests. You're dealing with an international shipping environment. Uh, the administration of, of that. Um, you have much larger crew who you have to search, who you have to corral. And as, as Mike said earlier, they have to be brought up on deck. They have to be, you have to make sure that it's safe for you to send your teams over on board. Um, you gather all that information and you're feeding it in real time back to the, to the force headquarters. And they're doing the, the intelligence analysis on board in their uh, J2 cell or N2 cell. Um, and that's, was just the first operation. And one unusual one in that particular part was we the new equipment that we have, the thermal imagers that we were using. During the operation, we the visibility was slightly off for the visual cameras. So we were using thermal imagers to monitor that the crew were compliant with our instructions. And we noticed a large heat source being thrown off the back of the ship. So, of course, immediately we assumed, because this was a, a migration operation, we thought on board that they were effectively dumping migrants into the ocean because this was the intelligence that we had been given in advance so we had to continue on with the mio and then redeploy our ribs to go backtrack along where that vessel had come from to check and effectively now you're telling people to go look to see if there's dead bodies so as it turned out in the end thankfully it wasn't uh, people but they had been discharging uh, product 
our elements off the ship and basically throwing stuff off the back of the ship, rubbish. But it had a very high heat source, including lit cigarettes, which combined together looked like the head of a human being when they were on an IR camera right. when they were being thrown into the ocean. So it's just an example of how you focus in on one particular mission and during the operation of that, suddenly you have to retask your elements back to another one. Yeah. I suppose. And then the, the last one we did was um, for arm smuggling. So again, a totally different vessel, a large merchant ship, um, suspected of importing heavy weapons into, into Libya for um, the conflict that's going on there. And again, professionalism, the, the team at this stage, because you're part of a, an EU and med and you're training the whole time, the team worked very closely together. It's the one constant team. Uh, straight over, secured the operation. Again, they came across compartments on the ship that were suspicious. Our engineering element of the boarding team were able to investigate those and deem them to be no threat. And again, all that information and intelligence is fed back up through the chain of command through force, through force headquarters back up to operation headquarters. And at the end of that mission, when we were leaving, the Admiral paid tribute to the professionalism of the, the boarding teams and the contribution that Ireland Inc. had made to the European effort on protecting Europe's southern borders and trying to bring peace and trying to stabilise uh, Libya and the operations in the Mediterranean. Well, at the end of that, thank you all for an excellent account of what is a large and multifaceted aspect of the Naval Service. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks very much. I mean, I suppose, as we said at the beginning of the show, or the podcast here, the MIO, Maritime Interdiction Operation, is just one part of a maritime security, defence and security operation. And that's what we're doing 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and 365 days of the year. So it, it's one end of it. It's only one part of what we actually do. Fantastic. And in future episodes of the podcast, I'm sure we'll be covering other aspects of Naval Service Service um, off the west coast of Ireland. For further information on the Irish Defence Forces, check out our social media platforms and military.ie. Serving members are also encouraged to check out the members area of military.ie. Today's episode was produced by Corporal Keith Harrison and Sergeant Paul Keeley of the Defence Forces Audiovisual School. Images on the cover were by Airman Sam Gibney. The Irish Defence Forces podcast is available for download on iTunes, Spotify and Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back soon with a new episode. To everyone out there, thanks for listening and stay safe.